Unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Evening, everybody. I don't know why my new mic doesn't work. Let me try it again. Can you hear me? You can't hear me. Okay. We, I can hear you. Um, can you hear us? No, I can hear you. Yeah. One device connected. Two devices connected. I think we're good. We lost you just then, Norman. Can you hear us now? Can't hear you now. Now you can hear me, right? Yes, we can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. So, uh, going on with our job of reading of Asabandha's text, Three Natures. We're on uh, the fifth verse. What is the unreal imagination there? Mind. Since it is imagined like this, both how it is imagined and the thing imagined are ultimately thus undiscoverable. So that's Ben's translation. And here's Jay's translation. It's a little different. What is the imagination of the non-existent? Since what is imagined 
absolutely never exists in the way it is imagined. It is mind that constructs the illusion. So this is, again, repeating the main point, which is that these Yogacara teachings are telling us that everything, absolutely everything, is mind. Which is uh, counterintuitive and rather hard to accept because, of course, we know that other people and the world around us are not mind. They're real. And if we say something is mind, what we mean by that is it's just in our head. It's not real. We're making it up. And it would really be pretty monstrous to say that we are making up the world and that the world isn't real, that other people are not real, and that the suffering of the world is not real. That would be a pretty horrific view to hold. And it sort of sounds like, at least in this verse, that's what Vasubandha is saying, but it's not. It's not at all what he has in mind. He is saying for sure that the world is mind and insofar as it's mind, it is unreal imaginary. That is, that is, as, as Jay's translation makes clear, it's not the stuff we think it is. So in that sense, it's unreal and imaginary. But he's not saying that because of this, the world is therefore trivial and we don't need to bother with it. Quite, quite the contrary. He's saying the world and the self are very real and very important exactly because they're not the way we think they are. Because remember, we learn, this is verse 5, but we learn right at the beginning that there are three natures. That's what this whole text is about. There are three natures. The imaginary nature that this verse is talking about, the dependent nature, and the complete realized nature. And that all three of these natures are the same, Actually, they're not three different natures. There's just three ways of talking about the same thing. And they're simultaneous. So the imaginary nature of the world doesn't make it unimportant or unreal because the world is at the same time also complete and realized nature. It is profound, much more profound and much more important than we thought. But Vasubandhu thinks that it's urgently important that we understand the imagination, the imaginary nature of the world we think we are experiencing. That's why he's calling it that and emphasizing that, because he's convinced that seeing this is the key to our being able to transform ourselves in the world. As long as we take our experience at face value, we will forever be doomed to be entangled in it, and we will forever be making a mess of things. That's why he's emphasizing this. So in this verse, he's simply saying the obvious, something that we all know, but uh, probably haven't sufficiently noticed or taken truly into account. I think we all know this. The only world any of us will ever know is the world that we are 
conscious of, the world that we are experiencing. That's the world for us. When we read in the newspaper about terrible things happening in places where we are not, what is actually happening is that we are having a powerful experience of fear or empathy, compassion, or anger, or confusion, or denial, or something. And we're having this experience in response to events we consider to be real, but actually we don't know how they are real or unreal. The only thing we know is our experience of them at the time of our experiencing of them. Even if we were actually there on the scene, as real people are, having visceral perceptions of these same events, still it would be our experiencing of them, our seeing, our hearing, our feeling, emotions, that would be what these events are for us. In other words, the most important thing for any of us is our own experience. The world is, in fact, our experience of it, the sum total of all beings' experience of it. And I think we all know this, but we don't really take it to heart, and we don't see, as Vasubandhu is trying to show us, all of its implications. And, and Ben sums all this up in his commentary to this verse in one sentence that's really clear. He says, Yogacharic teaching, and to a lesser degree, Buddhist teaching in general, emphasize things as experienced, not as absolutely real objects. Let's take, for example, uh, our body. We would all say, I have a body. This is my body. But we don't have a body, a hunk of meat, that we, who, possess, I have this body. We don't have a body. We experience a body. We experience taste or touch. We feel weight or pain. If you really devote yourself to cultivate, cultivating what is maybe the most important of all Buddhist practices, mindfulness of the body, you see, which we're practicing in part in Zazen, right? You see very clearly that there's no body. There's just an ongoing flow of experiences, many, many subtle experiences, most of which we don't even notice, that we conceptualize, we imagine as my body. When we understand this about the body, when we really understand this, we have a very different way of feeling the body and of feeling about the body. The difference is subtle, but it is all important. And the same goes for all of our experiences, our whole experiences of the world and our experience of our lives. So we're setting aside the question of whether there are or are not absolutely real objects. In a way, you know, this is not really relevant because the only question that matters for our lives and our transformation for our peace of mind, for our practice, for our effective action in the world and our 
capacity to peacefully live in the world is our own experience and how we understand it, how we hold it, and transform it. We can transform our experience of the world, and therefore we can transform the world. I, I used, uh, gave both translations of this verse uh, because it looks like uh, Ben translates the way he does. He uses the word undiscoverable. He says these, this is undiscoverable, which I think is good because he's thinking of some lines from Basabander's other text, the one that he wrote his previous book on, 30 verses, which emphasize that the imaginary world of every day is undiscoverable, that is unknowable as it really is, and knowable only as imagination, as images or objects of the senses or mind. But I don't think the verse actually uses the word undiscoverable. I think the verse has... Um, Jay translates it, I'm guessing, is more accurate, just saying that the world is imaginary, and it's imaginary because we are experiencing it not just as it is, if it is, but only through the mind. And we cannot possibly experiencing, experience it in any other way, in, in that sense. What we're experiencing is not the world, we're experiencing world plus mind. And, and this, and this, uh, and, and Ben's use of the word undiscoverable uh, reminds me of uh, the famous dialogue between Bodhidharma and Hueka, where Hueka comes to Bodhidharma and he says, and we can all imagine ourselves saying the same thing. Uh, my mind is anguished. I'm in anguish. Please help me pacify my mind. That's why I'm here. And Bodhidharma says to him, okay, then bring me your mind and I will pacify it. So Hueka goes off to meditate, looking for his mind. And of course, he can't find any mind. What mind? All he finds is the flow of experiences one after the other. Even to think of me, myself, or experience me, myself, is just a momentary experience like any other. So he finds that out and he comes back to Bodhidharma and he says, well, I can't find my mind. And Bodhidharma says, good, then I have pacified your mind. And it's true. When you really see that there's nothing to hold on to because nothing exists except this imaginary flow of experience, imaginary exactly because it's mediated through mind, then your mind really is at ease. Even if you have a really strong emotion like greed or grief or terror, even in the midst of that, at bottom, your mind is fundamentally at ease. Again, the word undiscoverable reminds me of another famous Zen trope, which you all know very well. Uh, not knowing is most intimate. But what are you doing? I'm going around, around on pilgrimage. 
What's the purpose of pilgrimage? I don't know. Good. Not knowing is most intimate. When you expect to be able to possess things, including yourself, to know things, and you don't, you will feel disappointed and maybe disoriented. But when you know that all knowledge is imaginary knowledge, then not knowing is itself intimacy, beauty, belonging, freedom. Here's another quotation from Ben uh, that uh, page 36, this is found on, that I was impressed with because it summed all this up so well. In Yogacara texts, he says, thinking doesn't just refer to the stream of words that run through our minds. Instead, thinking refers to the totality of how we perceive the world, for all our perceptions are dependent on chittas. They are mind. Chitta is the word translated as mind, usually. So this is also an important really important insight to keep in mind for actual practice. And it helps to not get so spun around by our thinking to realize that everything is thinking. Seeing something with your eye is thinking. Hearing with your ear is thinking. Feeling your emotions or sensations in the body is thinking. because those experiences don't exist without our mind. So when our thoughts are running wild, we can remember. This is just thinking. It's just words spinning. I don't need all the time to be so upset about the stupid things I'm thinking, even when they seem so convincing. This is one of the things that gets me about the situation going on right now in Israel-Palestine that I am thinking about every single day. Real people are dying and suffering. And all around the world, other people who are not in Israel-Palestine, are suffering, not so much, perhaps, because they actually care really about those people, but because they are having disturbing thoughts about those people that they firmly believe in. And this happens all the time. A lot of times, people don't really pay attention to the actual suffering of other people or even their own suffering because they don't really understand the suffering. They're paying attention to their thoughts about the suffering. And this is why, I mean, I said this the other day, I don't know, maybe it was after sitting or after seminar or what, the other day I said, because I'm doing this, it's good. 
in times of suffering to practice sending and receiving, breathing in the suffering, breathing it in, really feeling it, and breathing out peace and sending that peace to others. Because this way, you really take in the suffering. You really feel it. Verse 6. Mind is said to be twofold, cause and result. Also called store consciousness and arising consciousness, which is sevenfold. So in this verse, uh, Vasubandhu is referring to the famous uh, Yogacara system of eight consciousnesses, which is, a, is I think, uh, an innovation, conceptual innovation made by the Yogacara system. In early Buddhism, there are six, not eight, but six consciousnesses. The five sense consciousnesses and the mind, six. I consciousness is I, which comes into contact with something that can be seen, which then the mind is added to that, and then there's a perception. So there's three things, the organ, the object, the mind, and then we see something. And the same with the other four senses. And then the sixth sense, sense is mind. Mind consciousness is the mind, a thought that is the object of the mind organ, and then the mind that puts these two together into the experience of thinking. So mind has this double function. On the one hand, it's a sense organ itself. It cognizes thoughts. You can have thoughts even if you don't, see or hear or taste or touch anything the, the mind can still right have experiences without any sensual input so the mind is an organ but also it has a role to play with the other five because the other five don't operate unless mind is involved and that's why Yogacara is emphasizing this point. Everything has to be mediated through mind or it doesn't exist for us. So those are the very traditional uh, six, uh, five consciousnesses, uh, six consciousnesses, and five plus six is mind. And Yogacara adds two more. The seventh, or manas, is self-consciousness, the consciousness of a coherent person that is experiencing a world. Earlier Buddhism emphasized no self, right? Just the flow of experiences, there's no self. But the Yogacharans were interested in the felt sense we have of being persons, having a kind of command center for the buzzing experience of the world. And so they added this idea of the seventh consciousness to help us be a little bit less confused about the non-self and have a little bit more purchase on it. Because manas is still non-self because manas is not something absolutely real. It's just part of the imaginary flow. But maybe it helps to have this idea. 
Because if we have this idea, then we can meditate on it, just like Bodhidharma did and Hueka did. They meditated on self-consciousness and found that there was nothing there. And then, of course, the eighth consciousness, the famous Alaya Vijnana, uh, literally the storehouse consciousness. Now, to call this consciousness as if it were non-material is a little misleading. Because when we say consciousness, we mean, you know, my consciousness, a person's consciousness. A lot of people interpret alaya to be the unconscious, or more specifically, Jung's famous idea of the collective unconscious. But, but that idea exists in the context of Western thought in which there is a real material world that is absolutely different from consciousness, which is non-material. But that distinction doesn't exist in Buddhist thought, and alaya includes the material world. The material world arises out of alaya. Because, remember, the material world isn't the material world. It's the experience of a material world. So alaya is the world, including the physical world. And more than that, it is the potential for all possible worlds of the past, present, and future includes within it the seeds of anything that could ever occur. And here, remember, there are no things, just occurrences that flash up and pass away that we interpret as things. And what will actually occur will depend on what seeds we water. And this is the metaphor used what seeds we will water by our own conduct, our own actions and choices, including all the actions and choices anyone has ever made in the past. So the verse is saying that these eight consciousnesses are really fundamentally divided into two, alaya on the one hand and the other seven on the other hand. And alaya is the ultimate cause of everything, and the other seven are the result. The other seven arise out of Alaya. And they include ourselves, our sense of self, and the world that arises as a result of karma. So here, a very short footnote. Some Buddhists have criticized the Yogacara teaching, claiming that it is fundamentally heretical. The Yogacara teaching is fundamentally non-Buddhist. Why? Because isn't, after all, a liar, which is here directly described as the ultimate cause of everything, isn't Alaya actually a sneaky way of reintroducing into Buddha, Buddhism, the idea of God? 
or what the theistic traditions mean by God, who is, after all, the creator, the cause, right, of everything. So Yogacara is totally wrong. It's not um, kosher Buddhism. And maybe it's true. I don't know. But this might explain why it is that um, very reputable Buddhist teachers like Suzuki Roshi and Thich Nhat Hanh often will use the word God in an approving way or a kind of Buddhist way. And I think when they do that, I think they're equating uh, God in theistic traditions with Alaya Vijnana. Now, of course, the Yogacara proponents argue against this. They don't think that, yoga, that Alaya is a heretical concept. They say Alaya is not God because God actually exists. And Alaya is not a truly existing thing because it has three natures just like everything else. It's imaginary and real at the same time. So it's not real. Real, it's sort of imaginary and real at the same time. And to me, like debating this point seems pretty useless. I mean, where do you have a debate when you establish the idea that Two things that are the opposite of one another can be simultaneous true, simultaneously true. What kind of a debate do you really have once, once that is uh, in the mix? Anyway, verse 7. First, it is called mind, chitta, because it is full of chittatvat, seeds of afflictive tendencies. Second, it is called mind, chitta, because it is the arising of various chitra appearances. So in this verse, Vasubandhu is using playful and probably false etymologies or relationships of other words to the word chitta, which, the, which I said means mind or thought. Sometimes it's translated as thought or sometimes mind, depending on the context. So Vasubandhu is, is um, using these sort of punish other words to say that mind, all eight consciousnesses, is immense, all-inclusive, and also, at the same time, infinitely various. And this is uh, Sandokai teaching, right? Things are a totality, a oneness, and at the same time, each thing is absolutely unique. Sameness and difference, simultaneously appearing on all levels. So we are all human beings, all of us, exactly alike. That's why it's so heartbreaking, you know, when you see human cruelty, human violence against other human beings, it just breaks your heart because we're all exactly alike. And yet each kind of human being is different from every other kind, which is why we fight. And each individual human being is absolutely different from every other individual human being, and on and on. Everything is like that, absolutely the same and different. But more importantly for us, for this practice, 
for our practicing with this teaching is the second line of the verse, the line that says that the fullness of things, the unity of them, arises from the totality of all the seeds of afflictive tendencies. Alaya is a storehouse of every possible potential afflictive tendency, which is, on the one hand, a very tragic thing. It means that the world itself appears when the seeds of affliction that exist in potential in Elia are watered by action that arises out of ignorance. That's how the world appears. If everything were perfect and there was no affliction, there would be no world. We are dismayed by the world because the world is dismaying. But, let's not forget, although he's not mentioning it here, in the background here is always the fact that there are three natures, so the world at the same time that what I just said is true of the world, also the world is complete realized nature, which is these same afflictive seeds seen from a Buddha's point of view. So, the way that translates into actual on-the-ground practice is that we would never be surprised or shocked when an afflictive emotion arises in our mind. We would not blame ourselves or think that someone made a mistake or were damaged or wounded or we're not supposed to have afflictive emotions like that. Because of seeds of karma from the past, which we are not in control of, this moment of afflictive emotion arises in us, and it has to be there. So it's not my fault. But it is my practice to be wise enough to know what to do about it. And maybe this is the most important thing here. When afflictive emotion arises, do I do what comes naturally? Due to my long habit, do I grab hold of it and hit somebody else over the head with it? Or, or run away from it and therefore cause untold other issues and problems? Because I then give rise to, you know, I'm afraid of something, for example, and I don't want to face that, so I get angry at somebody for... I, I, this this happens to me all the time, you know. I'm I'm mad about something else, and then I'm I'm angry with the cupboard door or something. You know, it's ridiculous. But that's what we do. But can we stop doing that and instead practice with these afflictive emotions? Practicing, as Ben mentions, Kshanti Paramita, patient endurance, breathe and endure and understand what's going on. And when I do this, I am watering the seeds of awakening. I'm watering the seeds of compassion. And I'm going to have more peace in my life. And I'm going to be able to spread more peace to other people. So we are trying to do something here that this text is encouraging us to do because of it's telling us the way things actually are 
for us, we are encouraged to do this, to try to understand how to live peacefully and kindly, how to not be constantly victimized by our own minds and hurt ourselves and, and others too. Uh, verse 8, and now I'm going to give you the, uh, this time, the Jay Garfield translation of verse 8. One should think of the illusory non-existent as threefold. Completely ripened, grasped as other, and as appearance. So I'm going to follow here. Jay Garfield's analysis of this, which is somewhat different from Ben's, and I'll, and I'll say a little bit about Ben's too, but Jay, Jay Garfield, I mean, by the way, this is interesting in itself. I mean, we're speaking here as if we know what these verses are saying, but you can imagine that over the centuries, there's a debate about what exactly these verses mean, right? Not everybody agrees. And here's a case in point. The verses are so elliptical that people could have various viewpoints. Anyway, Garfield in his commentary to the verse says that it is pointing out this verse, that the illusory non-existent, that is Parinishpana, the first of the three, uh, the three um, views of reality, the imaginary world, that it has three aspects. First, completely ripened, meaning following along from the previous verse about the vast potential of alaya, this is the moment at which the world comes to fruit out of alaya. That's the first uh, aspect emphasizing alaya, the whole. So the world we live in, the world we experience, is the world we make that comes to fruit out of alaya. And since we make that world from all of our choices of the past. And this to me is the most wondrous thing about the Buddha's understanding of life. The Buddha thinks, and he feels like he sees this clearly, and this is also what this text is saying, that we have the power in any given moment to make a better world. It's a tremendously empowering thing. If we can meet a moment wisely, we can remake the world. We have that power. Second, the imaginary appears as other, which means that it appears as other than oneself. As the verses say, there is no other. There is no self apart from the world and, and a world apart from the self. But the world only appears to us as the imaginary because we are over here and the world is over there. If we were not over here and the world wasn't over there, there would be no world to see or experience. So our experience depends on basic alienation, a fundamental alienation. And that alienation is the source fundamentally of all our pain. But it's also the cause of the world's existing in its transcendent beauty. And also, it is very odd, and this is something that 
you've heard me mention before because I can't get over this. It's odd that we ourselves appear to ourselves as other than ourselves. To me, that is so bizarre. You know, how could you worry about yourself or try to protect yourself or feel good about yourself or feel terrible about yourself unless there was another guy other than you who was over there standing next to you noticing that there's something wrong with you, right? How could you even have that experience, which is so common for everybody? We all have like a point of view about ourselves, but who has that point of view? Right? This me, this is so bizarre. <laughs> I mean, basically, it means that in order for me to be me, I have to be somebody other than me. That's what it means. And this is my favorite subject for poems. You know, I I, I constantly writing about this in my poems, you know, that being a person is essentially a paradox. It doesn't add up. And, and we experience this all the time. But we don't kind of see how wacky it is. You know, we think of it as like normal. But it's totally wacky. And the third point, which is in Jay's analysis, almost the same as the second, is that the self is also an appearance a passing imaginary flow. So we are in a way like ghosts to ourselves, spooky imaginary appearances, which we put together into me or myself, but it really doesn't hold up. When you are yourself and you think that makes sense, I am me, definitely. And this is a coherent thing. Then the worst possible thing that could ever happen is that you would die and lose that one thing that you think you really have. But when you realize that the you that you are experiencing, because you are experiencing yourself somehow, is actually an imaginary spooky appearance, that you are, in fact, your own ghost, then there is nothing that you could lose. And so death, I mean, if it's painful, you would feel many pains. If you had to say goodbye to people that you loved, this would be very sad because you don't want to say goodbye to them. But death itself would not be really such a big deal. And isn't this where the Buddha started in the beginning? I often think, you know, how, how naive could you be? You know, <laughs> the Buddha says, sickness, old age, and death, terrible. I will go forth and put an end to this. And he, he, and he, and he does. This is the amazing thing. He says he's going to do this, and he does it. And that's just how he does it. He saw that there couldn't be anything that would grow old, sick, or die. Because all there was 
was this imaginary world of all-inclusive potential flowing along in bright beauty forever and ever and ever. So what's the problem? So the Buddha actually was the original Yogacara pundit, really. And, and I'm sure all the Yogacara people are fully convinced that everything that they're saying is already implied in the original awakening of the Buddha. So very quickly, because I'm just about done here, uh, Ben's interpretation of these same three aspects. And again, Ben is interpreting based on his reading of the 30 verses, which he's reading, I think, the 30 verses into this text, which is probably fair enough since they're both Vasubandhu's texts on mind only. But anyway, he interprets these three as first, the womb, that is the potential for all reality, which is Alaya. Second, the self or manas, which separates from the world in order to perceive it. And third, the other six consciousnesses, which is the flow of the world. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take my uh opportunity. I've been I've been very immersed in poetry lately, which makes me slightly crazy and uh, insufferable to people that know me well. Um <laughs> but I'll get over it. But at the moment, I'm I'm uh, been doing a lot of poetry. I did a reading last night in Minnesota where I saw Ben Connolly. No, I wasn't in Minnesota. You know, I was on the computer that was in Minnesota. Anyway, so I and and I was reading a little bit from. Uh, you know this book? There there was, there was a clattering as with a big beautiful picture of by Kaz on the cover. This is a, a little known book of mine that came out not long ago but i'll read i want to read this passage just because i happen to notice it and i if you if you think of all that i was saying you'll hear it you'll hear a lot of it in this passage it starts with a quotation for someone from someone or other let me see if i can look it up in the index who am i quoting here there's a uh at the end, there's a, a list of sources. Oh, it's it's John Locke. How I'm reading John Locke, I don't know, but I'm quoting here from John Locke. And then I go on to rewrite John Locke's paragraph uh, several ways. So this is John Locke. God having made man and planted in him, as in all other animals, a strong desire for self-preservation and furnished the world with things for food and raiment and other necessaries of life subservient to his design, that man should live and abide for some time upon the face of the earth, and not that so curious and wonderful a piece of workmanship by its own negligent or want negligence or want of necessaries, should perish again presently after a few moments' continuance, God, I say, having made man and the world, thus spoke to him, that is, directed him by his senses and reason, as he did the inferior animals by their sense and instinct, which he had placed in them, and to that purpose, to the use of those things which were serviceable for his subsistence, and given him as a means of his preservation. Or, 
man, having made himself by his own actions, thoughts, and deeds, so he thinks, built upon a chance-produced, received physical basis, and noticing that planted in himself is what all other animals, including bacteria and viruses, have likewise planted it in them, that is, a strong desire to go forward in a straight line into a future, plunging on as if pitched headlong with all energy having been provided by a beneficent planet, with the wherewithal to do so, that he might live and abide and get into whatever trouble he should wish or should be natural to him, and despite that implanted capacity, continuing to survive and so far not perish, but to go on for a while so that though in effect his own thinking and feeling and sense and instinct, as with other animals' feeling and its sensation, instinct, and more limited thinking, direct him. In fact, he's being dictated by another he scarcely could imagine exists. He takes his thoughts to be his own. He believes in himself to actually be himself, the world to be the world as he conceives it. In such wise, he lives with everything he needs to continue without ever recognizing who he is or what it is he's doing or why. Or... God made him as he is and planted in him a sense of identity and movement, illusions, so congruent with his mental apparatus that he believed in them implicitly, not paying attention at all to the internal inconsistencies that would have caused him to pierce this veil of fantasy had he noticed them. While well, all around him, all is played out for his usage, food and air, clothing and shelter, effortless to himself, though his pointless activity seemed to him to so act upon things that he provided all this for himself. Whereas the truth was that the earth had provided him for her own amusement. Sorry, that the earth had produced him for her own amusement to survive upon her in this illusory way for so long and only so long until such time as Earth had worn through the cruel joke, cruel only from his point of view, for it resulted in what he took to be his demise, and was of necessity now ready to move on to other more felicitous formal expressions on a grander and more noble scale. And... At some point in the development of his language-making capacities, man staggered backward, blown by a fierce existential wind. He understood that he would perish and thus crash through all linguistic barriers, which caused him to create the God that created him. And this was no mere illusion. For it was clear that the desire to live, despite the considerable trouble involved, and the fact that everywhere he looked, the air and water, plants, animals, other people, he saw the means to continue to make his life possible on a day-to-day -day basis, and that this made it nearly a tautological necessity that God had not only caused the world to be the case in the past, but that God, this was a word that stood 
for a non-linguistic non-entity he sensed in his words when he uttered them with feeling, God must be moment by moment continuing to create himself and the world for a purpose it made no sense to consider, though his nature was such that it would not allow him to rest unless he did consider it and continue to consider it passionately and fruitlessly into an unknown future. And, this goes on a little bit longer, and God and man existed in mutual need to tell one another convincing tales. God's story involved the fashioning in man of a partner for himself to assuage his thundering cosmic loneliness that could only result, left to its own devices, in anger and destruction. Yet being unused to such creative activity, he made man a size too small, and thus entirely imperfect. Whereas man's tale involved the eventual discovery through reason, science, and collective education built on language, writing, books, and machines that God had made for him the perfect world, intricate in design and workmanship, full of all he needed for the furtherance of his life, which, as he experienced it, grew and grew in stature until it became capable of experiencing a compulsion to write God out of the story, which he did, causing God's loneliness to increase in valence until it burst forth into an explosive darkness we see as the star-studded night sky, but which appears in God's tale as gentle, intermittent weeping. So that would be fun to read that. And don't you hear mind-only teachings in that? At least I do. Anyway, that's my justification for reading it. <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. Okay, so shall we have groups tonight? Yes, let's do that. Uh, before we do, though, I want to remember to tell you, because I always forget this, that we do uh, depend on you guys contributing, and, and probably you do. But I, I should remember that in case you forget, because money is such a bother, you know, and who wants to think about it? But uh, in case you forget about it, uh, do make contributions so that we can keep going, because we're having a lot of fun together, and we want to keep going. So thank you in advance for your contributions. So, um, Ben, I guess we'll make us into groups, and we can do groups of three. And very, very simply, let's let's do this fairly briefly, like in about 15 minutes. And very, very briefly, in about three or four minutes, just give us your off-the-cuff take about how these teachings are landing in you. In other words, not what do these teachings mean, but how are they landing for you? I mean, what are they doing for your sense of your own practice? And very impressionistically, 
and off the cuff. So let's do that for about 15 minutes. And then uh, that, okay, Ben, everybody's in groups of three. And then in 15 minutes, you can just close the window and we'll have a few minutes at the end. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to all that. I really appreciate it. I'm having so much fun with these teachings. They're so profound and so uh, subtle, but really important, I think. Really, really important. So enjoy your conversations. I'll see you in 15 minutes.